Father, we need you every hour, every moment. Because we are prone to wander. Left to ourselves, Lord God, we would not be able to finish the course. But thankfully that you have given us the Holy Spirit to provide our guidance and our enlightenment along the way. You've given us this word, Lord God, to map out our pathways, to give us light on that pathway so we know where we should step and what we should avoid. We thank you for your sovereignty. But we also are humbled by our responsibility. And so this morning as we open this word, Lord God, I pray that you give us understanding, clarity, and a heart that seeks to do your will for your glory and your kingdom's sake, I pray. Amen. Robert Cooper Schmidt, 81 years old, had no flying experience. In an emergency, however, he learned quickly how to land a plane. Cooper Schmidt and his 52-year-old pilot friend, Wesley Sickle, were flying from Indianapolis to Muncie, Indiana during a June flight in 1998. And during their flight, the pilot slumped over the controls. He died. The Cessna 172 single-engine plane began to nosedive, and Cooper Schmidt grabbed the controls. He got on the radio and pleaded for help. Nearby were two pilots who heard the call. Mount Comfort was the closest airport, and the two pilots gave uh, Cooper Schmidt a steady stream of instructions on climbing, steering, and the scariest part, landing. The two experienced pilots circled the runway three times before this somewhat frantic and totally inexperienced pilot, remember now, he's 81 years old, was ready to attempt the landing. Emergency vehicles were called out for what seemed like an approaching disaster. And witnesses said the plane's nose nudged the center line and bounced a few times before the tail finally hit the ground. And the Cessna ended up in a patch of soggy grass next to the runway. Amazingly, Cooper Smith was not injured. This pilot listened and followed those instructions as if his life depended on it. Because it did. Imagine what would take place in the lives of believers if we listened to and obeyed the word of God with the same earnestness, as if our lives depended on it. Last week, we broke open 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. Paul writes, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail the test? And we began to examine the importance of that scriptural command. It's a command that we should listen to and follow, an instruction that's given to us by means of the imperative nature, and our lives depend on it, spiritually speaking. I suggested to you that taking stock spiritually is essential if we are to present to the world an undistorted Jesus. 
I made that statement, the statement that evaluation and change are the constructive means by which we grow into mature followers of Christ. And by obeying the Bible's command to periodically engage in the discipline of spiritual self-examination, we guard against the danger of spiritual shipwreck or apostasy. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this devastating concept of apostasy, the abandonment of Christ and the Christian faith in response to the recent public declaration of a well-known Christian author and pastor that he has indeed walked away from his Christianity. One may think that apostasy is a new development. Not so. The New Testament writers were very aware of its threat and made no bones about issuing some serious warnings concerning its dangers. God takes apostasy and what follows, false teaching, very, very seriously. And that, as someone recently pointed out, is evidenced by the fact that every New Testament book, with the exception of Philemon, contains warnings of false teaching. Warnings about false teachings. Why is this? Simply because, now follow with me, ideas have consequences. Is that right? Ideas have consequences. Right thinking and its fruit produces goodness, whereas wrong thinking and its accompanying action results in undesired penalties. This article goes on to warn us. It should be remembered that Satan did not come to the first couple in the garden with an external armament or supernatural weapons. Instead, he came to them with an idea. And it was that idea that condemned them and the rest of humankind with the only remedy being the sacrificial death of God's Son. The great tragedy is whether knowingly or unknowingly the apostate teacher dooms his unsuspecting followers. Now listen to this. One of the most frightening verses in all of Scripture comes from the lips of Jesus. Speaking to his disciples about the religious leaders of his day, Jesus said, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. But he goes on to say this. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. That's Matthew chapter 15, verse 14. If a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. This verse is alarming simply because Jesus affirms that it is not only the false teachers that go to destruction, but their disciples also who follow after them. Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it this way, quote, For it has never yet been known to fail that one fool, when he goes astray, takes several others with them. Unquote. This is precisely the danger when a well-respected author or a pastor or a friend or a mentor apostatizes. If the people who follow them are not deeply rooted in following Christ 
first and foremost, the collateral damage is absolutely frightening. It's no wonder the New Testament has so many warnings about keeping ourselves in check with regards to our faith. Because you and I both know, as I mentioned last time, that spiritual drifting has deadly consequences, doesn't it? Right now, in this moment, I want to ask you a question. Where are you in your spiritual journey? All of us need to find the red dot in our spiritual lives, as Larry Crabb once put it. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, let me explain. Recently, a group of us were in Nashville, Tennessee for a, a huge conference at a huge resort. Okay? Next door to the conference center was an equally huge mall where we normally would go to grab lunch because it was cheaper there. In order to figure out how to get to the food court in this huge mall, what did we do? We had to determine our location in relationship to our destination, right? So, so we did what almost everybody does when you go into a big mall in a big city that's very unfamiliar to you. What's the first thing that you do? You go to the directory and you find the you are here icon, right? And usually it's identified by what? A red dot. Listen, friends. Some of you here today may not be sure where you are in your spiritual journey. Most of us know where we want to be, but we're not quite sure what our next step should be. All of us, however, need to find the red dot for ourselves. Locating the red dot in our spiritual life is the first step in our continuing journey closer to God. By examining ourselves, we uncover the truth about our declaration of faith, what your life and my life is like right now, and what it is progressing towards in relationship to Christ has a great deal to do with the genuineness of our claim to be Christ-following disciples. Evaluating whether or not we are truly in the faith is not just a nice suggestion, as I said to you last week. According to 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it's a serious command, first and foremost. If you're not there, turn to 2 Corinthians 13. just want to review this a bit. In verse 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, okay? Finding the red dot is not an option according to this verse. The Scripture commands that we continually test ourselves and examine ourselves. We're to make it a habit of life the command says, and there are two reasons for this testing. The first reason to test ourselves is to expose any glaring weaknesses or spiritual fractures in our lives. The second reason, indicated by the repeated command to examine yourself, is to examine for the purpose of approval. In other words, when we examine ourselves, we're also looking for something that puts the stamp of approval on our faith as well. Test yourselves, Paul says. Examine yourselves. Find the red dot. It's a serious command, secondly, with a specific concern. Paul says, to see if you are in the faith. Or do you not recognize that Christ is in you? Something is seriously off if we claim that Christ is inside of us, and yet that fact makes no difference in the way that we live or the way that we think or our worldview. 
Self-examination is not just a serious command with specific concerns, but it also carries with it a sobering consideration. Unless indeed, Paul says, you fail the test. Last time we were together, I shared with you that whenever I preach on Sunday mornings, I'm likely addressing at least four different groups of people, the ponderers, the possessors, the professors, and the procrastinators. Remember that? Well, if you recall, I referred to the people in these last two groups as the fence sitters or the mugwumps, people who sit on the fence of faith, not willing to commit either way. And I pose that these people are in the greatest of danger because they've heard the truth and they've not acted positively on it. At the end of that message, I also referred to a handful of critical warnings contained in the book of Hebrews written to people who are occupying that precarious place. There are five to be exact. I call them the five dangerous D's because they all begin with D. Well, in my book, they begin with D. <laughs> they sound the alarm that alerts people to the dangers of not fully committing ourselves to Christ while we still can, while the opportunity is available. This is especially relevant to those who are seriously considering apostatizing or walking away from their Christian faith. And believe me, there are people that may be considering that. There may be people in this building that are considering that right now. If in the process of pinpointing the red dot of your spiritual position, you find that you are there in that place, that you are perilously teetering on the fence, you need to consider, seriously consider, these dangerous deeds. Now, these are going to sound familiar to some of you because I've referred to them before. But it bears repeating because of what's been going on in our world, and it's a good reminder for all of us. The first one, turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to kind of camp out here for a little bit. The first one I call the danger of drifting. The danger of drifting. Hebrews chapter 2, first four verses. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. See, so it's not just my D's, it's the Bible's D's as well. We don't drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For this reason, that term, that phrase, refers to everything that the writer has said in chapter 1 about the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found in him. So if you go back and read chapter 1, you'll get all that background. But he warns people that they need to pay extremely close attention to what they've heard about Christ, lest they drift away from it. Those words, drift away, refer to a slow, passive 
change of course. Like a thought slipping from your mind. Or a ring slipping off your finger. It's the picture of a ship drifting ever so slightly away. Last week I quoted someone that quipped that hell is probably overrun with people who were never really actively opposed to Christ but who simply neglected the gospel or making a decision for the gospel. How many people in your circle of acquaintances are simply neglecting the truth of what you know about the gospel? Some of you that are within earshot of my voice this morning may be in danger of that subtle, slow drift. Little by little, you're just falling off course. You're no longer spending the time that you once did in cultivating your relationship with Christ. Maybe Scripture becomes a little less compelling to you. A prayer becomes slightly less important to you. The fire that once burned in your heart seems now to be little more than a charred, smoldering wick. Believe me, when apostasy happens, it rarely happens all at once. Drifting, my friends, is not a radical departure. It's a gradual slippage caused from continued neglect. All you have to do to shipwreck, my friends, all you have to do to shipwreck is simply neglect to check your course. If we willfully neglect the truth, we cannot escape the results. It says it right there in Hebrews 2. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we neglect that truth, there no longer remains another way to bridge that chasm of the enmity that we have with God. If you think you can willfully turn your back on Jesus Christ and escape judgment, you are sadly mistaken. How shall we escape if we neglect it? The writer says, don't make the mistake I have witnessed so many people make. Don't underestimate the danger and devastation of spiritually drifting. If you know you are drifting right now, get it back on course. Last week I quoted Scottish theologian and author Sinclair Ferguson as saying, the solemn fact is, is that none of us can tell the difference between the beginning of backsliding or drifting, and the beginning of apostasy. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Both look the same. So what are the telltale signs of this sickness unto death, he says? Are there early symptoms that might alert us to the spiritual danger? And I think there are. And I had a list here that I had found, 25 indicators of someone who is spiritually drifting, but I'm not going to give you those. I'm going to point you to the scripture because it, uh, it shows you exactly what it is in Hebrews chapter 6. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says, Hebrews 6, 8 through 12 suggests three things that you should look out for. First, you should look out for the presence of thorns and briars. Look at verse 8. 
But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. What he's using here is a metaphor. He's talking about the ground that drinks up the rain. And then it says, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed. He's using it as a metaphor for your spiritual life. Here, Hebrews echoes the words of Jesus in the parable of the soils. In some soils, hearts, the good seed of the word is planted and it sometimes takes root. But in fact, the soil is infested with weeds that strangle the fruit of the good seed in some people's hearts. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in, Jesus says, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Presence of thorns and briars, thorns and thistles. Is that in your life? Secondly, we should look for the absence of things that always accompany salvation. Verse 9 says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. What are these things that accompany salvation? They are surely the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians, hold your finger in Hebrews, Galatians chapter 5, let me just read down through these verses, verses 22 to 24 here, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's pretty clear what the Scripture says. Paul interestingly contrasts verbally the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh, which are, back up to verse 19, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these marks of grace are the natural outcome, the fruit of the Spirit, of regeneration. Furthermore, The cross has a central place in the life of those who are Christ's because they have crucified the flesh with its passions, it says in verse 24. And the third thing Sinclair Ferguson brings out is that perhaps the most alarming of the three is a failure to show diligence and a tendency to become sluggish. Back in Hebrews, again... In chapter 6, look at verses 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, Back in the first warning, the danger of drifting in chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews warned how easy it is to just drift away. But this drifting happens slowly and it often goes unnoticed. Yes, apostasy happens. Sometimes the catalyst is flagrant sin. 
The pain and conviction of repentance is refused. And the only alternative to it is wholesale rejection of Christ. But sometimes, he says, the catalyst is a thorn or a thistle that is growing quietly in the heart and indifference to the way of the cross, a drifting that is not reversed by the knowledge of these biblical warnings. Second danger, the danger of distrust. That's in Hebrews chapter 3. I'm just going to read a few verses here, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Skip down to verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, instead of entering the rest of the promised land, the Israelites walked in circles in the desert for how many years? Well, that's a long journey, isn't it? That's a long, slow drift, isn't it? Forty years. And you know what happened at the end of it? The graves of an entire generation littered that desert because they would not enter into the promised land. They didn't enter into Christ's rest. Folks, if anything should show you what I was talking about earlier, it's this, you cannot ride the fence. What did those Israelites do when they were standing at the edge of the promised land and the spies, the two spies said, let's go in, God will be for us. And the rest of them said, no, we're not going, we're too afraid. We're not going to commit. We're not going to take the step to trust God. What happened? Back in two worlds, right? What happened to them? Then later on, they reversed that decision. Okay, let's go. Moses said, no, you go in now, you're going to get wiped out. Now you're going to wander. You can't keep your feet in two worlds, waiting to decide which way you're going to go. Now is the time for decision, the book of Hebrews says. The longer you put off receiving the gospel of Christ, the greater the danger of your soul becoming calloused and hardened to it. Chapter 3, look at verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter. Why? Because of what? Unbelief. Distrust. Unbelief. What was true of the Israelites is true of apostates today. Unbelief is the ultimate reason that people reject the rest of Christ. That's the bottom line. The only way to enter his spiritual rest is to believe in Christ, to trust in the salvation that he offers. Chapter 4. 
verses 1 and 2. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of both soul and spirit and joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. See, Christian lives are open and laid bare to God, aren't they? Christian lives are often comparable to the disparity between front and backyards of many California homes. And you say, what are you talking about? Well, West Coast pilots would understand this analogy completely. I have read that on bright, clear days when a pilot is blessed to be dancing with the clouds, he sees the stark difference between the front and backyards of numerous homes. If you and I were to be a passenger looking out over the landscape, we'd see beautiful, lush, green, landscape front yards, one after another, like an Irish giant's checkerboard quilt. But every third backyard or so... It would be Sahara brown, weed-covered, and trash-littered. From an earthly perspective, it may be difficult for us to see a man or woman's backyard. But the pilot has no trouble seeing the difference. Likewise, the soul and spirit of a man is, is as hidden from other men as his backyard is hidden from a passerby. It may be impossible for one man to see the inner reality of another, but from God's perspective, it's no trouble whatsoever. So let me ask you, how's your spiritual backyard? Are you in danger of drifting? Are you falling into distrust? Maybe not, but there's a third big D to check yourself against, and that is the danger of dullness. The danger of dullness, chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing... For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. This is by far, in my opinion, the most widespread danger in the church today. People become dull to the things of God. Just bored with it. They come and they sit and they listen and they go rather than grab on to what they've heard in order to go and to act and to learn and to grow. It's kind of like spiritual ADD, attention deficit disorder. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. 
Again, these things are hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You should be teachers by now, he says. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Dullness hinders our spiritual perception and performance. Let me say that again. Dullness hinders our spiritual perception and our performance. And the saddest picture in the world is someone who for years has professed to be a follower of Christ and hasn't done anything with it. Are you in danger of that? You know, maybe you ought to be teaching others. But instead you keep going over the ABCs. Your spiritual diet hasn't changed at all. It's largely because you haven't responded to what you've heard. I think back in the Jonah series, I made a statement about that. But God's not going to give you something new until you do with what he's already given you to do. You know what the scary thing is also? Is that whole churches can become like that. Entire Church congregations can be like that, stuck in spiritual infancy. Listen, if you're bored with your faith, it may be because you're not using your faith. Hebrews 6, 1 to 3. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Friends, we should be allowing God to move us forward in our faith. We must press on to maturity. Spiritual dullness is hurdled by spiritual progress. For an increasingly large number of people in churches, the things of God have become very dull and uninteresting. It's like, like a no-salt diet. People are looking for something more exciting to their senses all the time, but they want something less threatening to their lives. More exciting to the senses, less threatening to your life. Usually it involves something other than Christianity. Dullness, my friends, hints at spiritual apostasy. Are you thinking about going AWOL from the faith? If you're in that place, here's a New Testament text message for you. Straight from the hand of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Probably one of the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament 
And by the way, these warnings are increasing in intensity. You notice that? They're getting harder. The reality is, is that if you have gotten that far, if you've got the knowledge of the truth and have seen and even experienced the Spirit working in people's lives, and then you turn your back on Christ, there's no place left for you to go. If you think you're going to find salvation in some other system, it isn't going to happen. There's only one way. And Jesus said, I'm it. If you profess to be a Christ follower and then you turn your back on him, chances are you were never really his to begin with. Look at verses 7 and 8. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. There's that discrepancy again that we looked at earlier. Is your life producing fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, or is it producing thorns and thistles? If it's thorns, thorns and thistles, you never really were his to begin with. Verse 9, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, for we are speaking in this way. Again, Sinclair Ferguson comments, the author is confident of something better in them. The very things that accompany salvation. The implication is that, now watch this, however powerful the experiences described in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, may be. These are not the definitive marks of being a Christian. So people say, well, it sounds like they were Christian. They've been enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gift and even been partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God and even the powers of the age to come. But they fell away. So there's got to be something more as an identifying mark of being a Christian than what's listed here. These may be present when genuine faith is absent. That's an interesting comment, isn't it? What you read here may be present in people when genuine faith is absent. Harken back to Matthew chapter 7 when they said to Jesus, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do miracles in your name? And Jesus said, I never knew you. See, in fact, Hebrews is telling us that which is possible to experience without actually being a Christian. You can be fooled yourself. You can fool yourself. Something then must be missing, therefore, from this list of influences and experiences. What Hebrews has already said about an earlier generation brings it to light. He says, the gospel was preached to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not mixed with faith. They didn't have faith. There was no real trust in Christ. If you look at these verses, it doesn't say anything about people trusting Christ. As a matter of fact, the whole context is about people turning away from Christ. The crucified, the risen, the reigning Savior. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, I'm convinced of better things concerning you. And I'm convinced of better things concerning the church today. And I hope for better things concerning people like Joshua Harris. That's my hope. Because I like to think that sometimes 
People who walk away have simply forgotten whose they are and need to be brought back to the reality of their true identity. Let me illustrate that. I assume most of you have seen the original Toy Story movie, yes? Remember that movie? Early in the movie, Woody shouts out this to Buzz. You're not a space ranger. You're an action figure, a child's plaything. Only after failing to fly, Buzz realizes the truth of Woody's statement, right? Grease-stricken and disillusioned, Buzz hangs his head in resignation, declaring, quote, I'm just a stupid little insignificant toy, i.e., I'm not a Christian anymore. Woody seeks to comfort his friend by underscoring the love of the boy who owns them both. You must not be thinking clearly. Look over in that house over there. There's a kid who thinks you're the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger. It's because you're his. As Buzz lifts his foot and he sees the, the label affixed to the bottom of his boot, there in black permanent ink is the name of the little boy, Andy, right? To whom he belongs. Seeing the mark of his owner, Buzz breaks into a smile and takes on a whole new determination. Here's the truth, friends. We're not our own. Scripture tells us that if we're in Christ, we're bought with a price. We're bought by Jesus. We're his. The value of our lives is not determined by our rank or our heroic actions or even our accomplishments. Our value is determined by the one who has marked us with his own blood as his own. That's why I say, again, that sometimes I think people who walk away have simply forgotten whose they were. Someone like a Woody needs to come alongside of that buzz and say, remember whose you are. Look deep inside. Look at the scriptures. Look at the name that's marked on your soul. Jesus paid for it with his blood. You're his. And Jesus says, of those who he has given me, I lose nothing. We all have a choice. We can snap out of dullness and respond with determination to the love of Christ who bought us. Or we can continue to go our own way. That choice propels us to consider the fourth D. It's probably the most serious of the five warnings because it smacks of an attitude and acts of flat-out rejection. You cannot truly be following Christ and continuing in blatant sin. Chapter 10, verse 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, I'm half tempted to just end it here and pick it up again next week. And I'll tell you why. Because what I just told you about that last warning, 
about the fact that sometimes people forget whose they were? They got to remember that? I want to leave you on that note today. Because we're going to go to the waters of baptism this afternoon, and that's going to be a line in the sand that these people are drawing about whose they are. And next week, we'll look at some more warnings. All right, but let me close with this. In January of 2000, leaders in Charlotte, North Carolina, invited their favorite speaker, Billy Graham, to a luncheon in his honor. And Billy initially hesitated to accept the invitation because he struggled with Parkinson's disease. But the Charlotte leader said, we don't expect a major address. Just come and let us honor you. So he agreed. After wonderful things were said about him, Dr. Graham stepped to the rostrum. He looked at the crowd and he said, I'm reminded today of Albert Einstein, the great physicist who this month has been honored by Time magazine as the man of the century. Einstein was once traveling from Princeton on a train when the conductor came down the aisle punching the tickets of each passenger. And when he came to Einstein, Einstein reached into his vest pocket and he couldn't find his ticket, so he reached into his other pocket and it wasn't there. So he looked in his briefcase, but he couldn't find it there. And then he looked in the seat by him and he couldn't find it there. And the conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought the ticket. Don't worry about it. And Einstein nodded appreciatively. Well, the conductor continued down the aisle, punching tickets, and as he was ready to move to the next car, he turned around, he saw the great physicist down on his hands and knees, looking under his seat for his ticket. The conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, don't worry about it. I know who you are. It's no problem. You don't need a ticket. I'm sure you bought one. Einstein looked at him and said, young man, I, too, know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. <laughs> so having said that, Billy Graham continued. He says, see this suit that I'm wearing? It's a brand new suit. He said, my wife and my children and my grandchildren are telling me I've gotten a little slovenly in my old age. I used to be a bit more fastidious. So I went out and bought a new suit for this luncheon and one more occasion. You know what that occasion is? This is the suit that I'll be buried in. But when you hear I'm dead, I don't want you to immediately remember the suit that I'm wearing. I want you to remember this. I not only know who I am, but I also know where I'm going. Do you? So friends, before you and I can even consider the possibility of going forward with God toward the ultimate destination, all of us need to examine ourselves. Find the red dot. Are you even on the map? Are you really in the faith? Or are you just playing religious games? This, folks, is not a joke. This series is not a joke. Today is the day to take these warnings seriously. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for again for another word which convicts us to the core. But I pray, our Father, and I'm convinced of better things concerning the people in this church, things that accompany salvation. And thank you that we're going to celebrate those things this afternoon. We just pray, Father, for your blessing upon 
this, this place, this congregation, these people as they leave here. And if there are people here that are teetering on the fence and have not made a decision for you, I pray, Lord God, with all of that that I have, the depths of my heart, that they would not leave here without making certain of their calling in Jesus. For I ask it, pray it in his holy and precious name. Amen.